Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. My name is Ryan Parnell and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse, Pam McMillan. We're here for another one, huh? We are, Pam, and I I know I say this a lot. I am really excited about today's episode. You always like these hard topics, right? Yes, I do. Um, there, I, I like the challenge, and, and it's great information, right? Yes, you know, um, I know we're committed to getting hard questions answered, but as always, we will always recommend that you discuss um your specific case with your physician, right? That's right. And that's no different than today. Uh, we are discussing something that we want to make sure everyone understands that uh, there are a lot of individual uh, pieces and parts to this. Uh, we, but, but I'm telling you, the information we're going to give you today, I think um, you're going to find helpful, hopefully, uh, enlightening, and also um, some good talking points, maybe if you need to with your medical team. You know, we talk about your medical team a lot, getting to know your medical team, being in, in touch and how to communicate with them. But um, yeah, so that, that leads us to where we are today, Pam. Uh, I know that we have um, secretly and not so secretly stalked and checked out this speaker and this person. Um, uh, and it's it's been a lot of fun. And this day has been long coming and we've put it off so that we have the most up-to-date, uh, ready-to-go information. And so we're super excited. Let me introduce you guys listening to our guest today, Dr. Katrine Wallace, or as most people who know Dr. Wallace, they know her as Dr. Cat. Now, it's not C-A-T, it's Dr. K-A-T. She's an epidemiologist and science communicator, but I'm telling you guys, she has a PhD in epidemiology, 15 plus years of professional research experiments and experience in epidemiology, research, design, pharmacoepidemiology, that's a hard that's a word, word. Yes. health <laughs> economics, outcomes research, and biostatistics. She's currently an epidemiologist and adjunct assistant professor of epidemiology at the University of Illinois in Chicago, their School of Public Health. Dr. Kat, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for that nice intro. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, this is so awesome. Uh, you know, Pam, that voice is the voice we've heard and said, hey, did you see Dr. Kat's newest TikTok or <laughs> newest Instagram, right? Social media, yes. It, yeah. So. Dr. Cat has been um, very prominent, and, and let's just start there about your TikTok. As as someone uh, described you, your TikTok famous. Uh, I, I, I at least my kids say that I'm not TikTok. I don't even have TikTok, um, but you're also on Instagram, and and you've really taken this big, huge push into social media. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So I was never setting. So as a, my, usually my science communication before the pandemic happened in the classroom, because I'm, I teach at UIC. So that was my, the kind of the extent of my science communication before this. Um, but I joined TikTok at the beginning of the pandemic, sort of for the same reason everybody else did, because I was bored during the lockdown. I just wanted some entertainment and people were talking about TikTok a lot. So I was like, let me see what the fuss is all here. So I downloaded it 
and in between seeing videos of, you know, people doing dances or their dogs or food, I was also unfortunately seeing a lot of COVID-19 misinformation. And as an epidemiologist kind of trained to read the data, I just couldn't stop myself from trying to set the record straight. So that started back in March of 2020. And at that point, the misinformation was like COVID wasn't even real, that it was all just like this made up hoax and that it was really like the flu miscoded. Doctors can make extra money or something. And so I started to talk about the data that we had and how we could show that it really was real and that, you know, showing that the, you know, people were saying that everything was miscoded and I was showing data that it wasn't. And it sort of just went from there. And I'm still, here we are 20 months later. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. Well, and so, you know, that, that is kind of what we're going to discuss today for our listeners. We're, we're going to just really talk about some of the science. We're going to try to keep it to where it is uh, not way over our heads. Yeah. Um, We talked about a lot of big words. Um, and, and, but we're going to try to keep it to where it's, it's, it's easily understandable and helpful for, um, from a cancer survivor standpoint. Um, there's right. a lot and of- that's really my goal on social media. Also, I don't tend to use a lot of big words. My, I look at my role on social media as like a liaison between the science and the data and ordinary lay people who are just on social media that want to learn. And want to learn the concepts, but don't necessarily want to get a master's degree. <laughs> and it's right. what I found is it's incredibly um, educational in very short snippets. You know, a yeah. minute and a half, I don't, it, thirty seconds. And it's, like, <laughs> <Yeah>. oh. <laughs> it, it's it's definitely so. I'm used to having a whole class period to discuss these types of issues. So for me, this making making videos has been a very good lesson in brevity. And learning to just hit what's very important in a small amount of time. So it's been very much of a learning experience for me because I'm used to having all the time I want to talk about. Yeah. Well, let's educate our listeners real quick on what exactly an epidemiologist is. Yeah. So we, that's a great question. So we, I'm, we do medical research and statistics on populations. So like if you're sick and you go to a doctor because you have something wrong with you, that's like an individual solution. Your doctor treats you as an individual person. So an epidemiologist is a population doctor. So my patients are populations instead of people. So that's why population-based, instead of prescribing medicine, we prescribe population um, interventions like masking or like vaccination, something that affects the whole population at once, social distancing, things like that, that work on a population level. So prior to the pandemic, what was your focus on then? Oh, that's a great question. It was, it, it, it was, and is still on cancer. <laughs> okay. So, so look, Ryan, we've got an expert, right? We went, we went to not, not, I wouldn't say I'm an expert like you guys are, but definitely. Um, so my background in epidemiology is in geriatric epidemiology. So I was focused on diseases of the aged. And so most of my research to this point has been on cancer and with a specific emphasis on prostate cancer, because I did my fellowship in a urology clinic. Um, 
And then I work on influenza a lot because that's another disease that affects the elderly. But I've done a lot of research on cancer at UIC. So I definitely, and I'm still kind of dialed in with all of that. So I have a day job too. Unfortunately, I don't get paid for being a social media sensation. (laughs) You know, that's, and that's what, you know, my kids talk about too, sometimes how, you know, these influencers and things. And so, yeah, that, that you still have your regular day job where you're teaching and yes, (laughs) that teaching and researching. Yeah. So we're just thrilled that you're able to fit us in between classes and between TikTok videos. <laughs> I know. Well, no problem. I feel like this is very important. I'm always very honored to be invited to people's podcasts because anytime I'm talking to a different audience that I don't normally reach is a privilege for me. So I appreciate the invitation. Awesome. We're well, just grateful you. to have you. Right. What is um, the difference between all the vaccines that are out there, specifically so the- to COVID? So in the U.S., we have three vaccines that are um, authorized or approved for use. And two of those vaccines are what we call mRNA vaccines. And those are Pfizer and Moderna. Um, And those are using um, the messenger RNA technology, which is not new, contrary to what a lot of people think. This technology has been in development for over, since the 60s, but really in vaccines over 20 years. So the vaccines that we have right now are sort of like, they were developed first for the SARS, original SARS virus, which was back in the 2000s. And we never really needed it here because the SARS virus never really became an epidemic in the US. And the, so that vaccine was never used. So it was very easy to change this target of the spike proteins to be the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And this is another reason this vaccine is so great because if we need another one for like a variant or something, it's very easy to change that, the target. The other type of vaccine we have is called an adenoviral vector vaccine, which is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is a slightly different technology using an inactivated virus to get into the cell instead of messenger RNA. Which that explains why the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine came out so quickly, I guess, because it's been that technology has been around a while. That technology has been around. And it also explains again, again, why like the, those two vaccines are very similar in efficacy, similar in safety profile, adverse event profiles are similar. And Johnson and Johnson has different there. It's, it's just a different um, class of vaccine. So is one vaccine better than the other? So that's a good question. And there's a lot of answers to it, right? So there's, there's people that are, Um, So if you, for example, the only real contraindication to getting a vaccine is if you're allergic to one of the ingredients in it. So if you're allergic to like PEG, um, then you would probably not want to get one of the mRNA vaccines because it's in there. So you'd want to get the Johnson & Johnson. So for you, if you're allergic to PEG, then Johnson & Johnson would be better, right? Because you don't want to have an allergy to the vaccine. Um, and likewise, there's things in the Johnson Johnson that are not in. So, so for allergies, there's definitely better or worse. Another answer to that question would be for efficacy reasons, right? So there's, it's been shown in our 
first phase three studies that, you know, Johnson Johnson was one shot, but it had a lower efficacy level than the other two mRNA vaccines that were much higher in the 90%. Now, does that mean Johnson Johnson's like a worse vaccine? Not necessarily, because there are some communities where one shot is very um, attractive, like, you know, maybe an unhoused population or that are very needle averse would want to get one shot versus two. Um, so there's that. There's positives to having one shot. And on a population level, theoretically, if everybody's vaccinated, then one vaccine having a slightly lower efficacy than another shouldn't matter on a population level. But we had issues getting some segments of the population vaccinated, and that's where we had problems with breakthrough cases, more so in Johnson & Johnson because of their lower efficacy. Yeah. Are there are there other vaccines in, in, in the works? Yep. There's um, one called Novavax that is more of a like traditional vaccine that is um, they've had some manufacturing issues, I think. And so that one is delayed. But um, a lot of people that one showed really great efficacy in their trial that they um, released data on. And a lot of people were like going to wait for that because they were more interested in having a more traditional type of vaccine. But the idea is really to get vaccinated as soon as possible, because now since the since July, everybody knows that we have this Delta variant and it's really important to get as many people vaccinated as possible because the Delta variant is more transmissible than the earlier versions of the virus. And I can't stress this enough, this changed everything because one person infected with Delta variant will infect more secondary people than the original virus or the alpha variant, which came before it. So that means if we're infecting more people from each primary case, then we need more people vaccinated in the community to kind of make up that herd immunity threshold. So it's really important to get as many people as possible. So we don't want anybody waiting. Sure. We hear oftentimes about herd immunity. Can you explain that to our listeners? Of course, yes. So herd immunity is, um, so yes, thank you. Whenever I say, whenever I veer off the path, you had to pull me back over and make sure that I'm explaining things right. Um, so basically herd immunity is when, so I'll give a measles example because measles is really contagious. It's got like each primary case will infect like 14 secondary cases um, if everybody's unvaccinated, right? So that one is like, we need everybody, almost everyone in the community needs to be vaccinated in order to protect it against um, measles because it's so communicable. So basically what it means is like the more communicable a disease is, the more people in the community need to be vaccinated to prevent it. And we make this, the vaccinated people in the community are protecting the people that are maybe too old or too sick to get a vaccine because it creates this herd effect where everybody, like if I'm vaccinated, then I'm no longer susceptible. So I'm no longer passing it to other people. If you get enough people in the community that are also not susceptible and you get transmission down to a very you know, reasonable level, which vaccination also does, then those other people who maybe aren't vaccinated for whatever reason are also protected by the vaccinated people in the community. So that's, it's, it's a herd effect that's caused by getting yourself protected and then not able to pass it on. 
makes perfect so what, sense. What, what's the difference between natural immunity then? So um, I'm going to give the example with respect to COVID because it's different in different diseases. But with respect to, to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, we, we do recognize that there is natural immunity that occurs after an infection. The problem with it is that it's highly variable between people. So there's some people, and we've seen this in, in research studies in vitro and also in people, there's, there's people that have a strong and durable response for up to six months, and there's people that mount no response at all. And it's also variant specific. So you could, people were getting reinfections now from people that got the virus back in 2020 that are getting Delta variant breakthrough cases now because they just don't have immunity to Delta variant. It's, it's a specific type of immunity they have. So there's a lot of variability. It goes from people to pe person to person differently, um, how the immune system reacts. And, you know, it's, it makes sense because COVID itself, it will be very severe in some cases, asymptomatic in other cases, and we don't always understand why, right? We don't understand those risk factors enough yet. There's a lot about this virus we don't yet know because we've been sort of like building the boat as we're paddling, right? right. The pandemic has been going on. So who is going to become like a severe case? We know some of those risk factors as age, you know, obesity, some pre-existing conditions people have will kind of predispose them to a more severe case, but not in every case. We've seen, like, I always give this example of like the identical twins that worked together, lived in the same house, did everything the same. They both got COVID at an event. One was in the ICU and the other one was asymptomatic. And there's no explanation as to why in this, that's why the case was written up in the, as a case study, because no one could really figure out what the risk factors were differently between the two because they their environmental and biological risk factors were identical. So there's a lot we don't know. So we don't know how to tease out in the population who among us is going to mount a strong and durable response to disease acquired immune, immunity you know, versus the vaccine. What we do know is that in people that have had COVID in the past and are vaccinated afterward, they mount a really nice hybrid immune response. And in fact, it's even better than fully vaccinated or, you know, we don't want to recommend that as a strategy, of course, because COVID is associated with lots of morbidity and mortality in certain populations. So, you know, that's an end long COVID and all kinds of other things. So we don't want to try for that. But if people have had COVID, we do recommend vaccination afterward because you do have much better immunity. Yeah. One thing you, you touched on, and, and just because I'm curious as well, and maybe some of our listeners are variants. So how it, how does that happen? You know, how, how does the, the variant change? Because I know now there's a new um, Delta yep. Plus. Um, <laughs> and I'm assuming yeah. that we'll have a, another something or the other somewhere down the line. So can, can you explain that to us? I'd love to. And I'm glad you asked that question because it's really important to understand because there's a lot of misinformation that vaccines cause variants and that is patently false. 
Whenever we've seen variants pop up, it is in areas of high transmission of disease and low vaccination rates like Brazil and like India and South Africa and all the places where these have cropped up, Colombia, these are places that were low vaccination rates and high community transmission. And why does that happen? Because every, you know, our um, viruses mutate all the time, cells mutate all the time. You know, your cancer patients know about this, right? About how one mutation can cause something really bad. So this population really understands that. And it's the same with viruses. They mutate all the time. And most of the time, those mutations are harmless. But every once in a while, the mutation will adapt in such a way that it makes the virus more fit. Either it spreads easier or it's more um, resistant to vaccines or you know something like this. So when that happens, it becomes what we call a variant because it causes the virus to behave differently. And this only happens by transmission because every time a virus transmits to another person, it starts to replicate and re mutations depend on replication. So the more unvaccinated people we have in the community, the more the virus replicates and spreads. Wow, it's so interesting. Science. <laughs> I know. But I mean, and with people, people might say to me, push back on me and say, but vaccinated people also can spread the virus. And that's true. We can. In areas and times of high transmission, it is more likely a vaccinated person will have a breakthrough case. But there's two things about that. The one is that in population-based data in the U.S., we know that vaccinated people are six times less likely to test positive for COVID. That's first of all. And you can't spread a virus that you don't have. So that's first of all. We're much less likely to contract it to start with. And then secondly, if we do contract it, our viral loads drop off much faster. We have two studies now showing that, you know, it might be the viral loads may be similar, like the first couple of days, but that we, because our body has already been trained to recognize it, our cells attack it there. We already have the infantry lined up to go get it. Right. So yeah. if you don't have that, pre-existing protection, it's going to take you longer for your viral load to drop because your body has to take a few days to learn the virus, understand what's going on, and then fight it. So the viral loads drop off faster, so it's less likely a breakthrough case will spread it to somebody else. So are vaccines safe for cancer survivors? So we haven't had any um, indications yet, and there's been like millions of people, billions of people at this point who've been administered these vaccines. Um, we don't have any contraindications for COVID vaccines and, and cancer patients. In fact, it's the opposite. We, we, think, we recognize that cancer patients may mount a less effective immune response to the primary series. So there are now boosters being recommended for this population to protect them against COVID because recognizing that the risks of COVID in this population, the risks of severe COVID in this population are higher because of their cancer. So I guess kind of what you said, just because I might make sure that our listeners understand that and that I understand, because sometimes I'm a little <laughs> slow, um, a cancer survivor because of their immunocompromised system, 
their, their, the response to the vaccine may be a little. So I'm sorry, I was more talking about, thank you for correcting me because I'm talking about maybe cancer patients. So a cancer survivor, I would talk, I would definitely evaluate your actual immunocompromised status with your own physician, because most cancer survivors regain their immune function. Um, So unless you're on some kind of long-term medication that affects your immune function, I would say that you're probably immunocompetent after you're survived out a few years or something, right? Sure, sure. But if you are a cancer patient undergoing treatment or just finished treatment, that's the people that we would consider to be immunocompromised. And so they may have a lower response, lower, less robust response to the vaccine while they're in treatment, potentially. Right, correct. Potentially. Again, for all of our listeners, this is, we're painting with a very broad brush here. Yes, correct. Yeah, these are population recommendations. What's what's recommended for you personally would be better um, delineated by your own physician that has your chart and all your labs and everything in it. Um, but yeah, but most, I would say most of the time, and Pam, please correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the time, once somebody is a cancer survivor out of treatment and just kind of out in the community doing their thing, you're not immunocompromised anymore. Right. And I think when we, Ron and I speak of cancer survivor, we consider a survivor from the day of diagnosis. So that- We have yeah. a mixed population. Mixed yeah. Population. Okay. That are going and through. I, and I should have clarified that, that, but yes. Okay. That so if, are, you're, if you're in, if you're in treatment, then absolutely vaccines, boosters, protect yourself from COVID because you're at risk for severe COVID due to the fact that your own immune system may not be as robust as it was before treatment. So speaking of boosters, who what does the CDC recommend for boosters? Who is it targeted for? So there's um, different categories. So the very first category that came out was immunocompromised people. So that came out like a couple months ago now um, because that group is the most at risk for <laughs> severe outcomes. So that was recognized early on. So immunocompromised people, definitely. Then there is new groups that were just approved like a couple weeks ago. And that is anybody over the age of 65, just whoever you are, whatever your health status is, if you're over 65, then you qualify for a booster. Now, let me just clarify that the Pfizer and Moderna primary series is two shots. I'm just going to clarify what fully vaccinated means for people. Getting a booster does not go into this. So if you're fully vaccinated, it means that for Pfizer and Moderna, you've had two shots. Pfizer, it's 21 days apart. Moderna, it's 28 days apart. That's fully vaccinated. For Johnson Johnson, it's one shot. So once you've had those, you are still considered fully vaccinated. If you decide not to get a booster, nobody's ever going to say to you, you're not fully vaccinated because the booster is something extra. Mm-hmm. I just want to make sure people know that because I think people don't understand that all the time. So anybody who had a Johnson and Johnson primary. So if you had the one shot of Johnson and Johnson, no matter 
who you are, if you had that, after two months, you are eligible for a booster. So there's no like qualifying categories, except that you have to have had the one shot and you're 18 and over, but that's already the criteria for the first one. So if you've had Johnson & Johnson and you're listening to this, you're eligible for a booster. <laughs> and the, I just wanna make this as clear as possible. Yes. And for Pfizer and Moderna, if you've had your two shots and you're six months out, so Johnson Johnson was two, this is six. So if you're six months out from the two shot primary series for one of the other two, you're eligible for booster if you're over 65 or you are um, in a job that get, puts you at high risk for COVID, like if you're in physician in an emergency room or you work in a homeless shelter or you're a teacher or I'm throwing out, these are not the only examples. These are just some examples. Or if you're a essential worker um, working in a busy store or something like that, or, you know, these are things that you can do. You can get a booster if you are in one of those. And the CDC has examples of these kind of job categories on their website. Another is if you are 18 to um, 55 or 60, sorry, 18 to 64, and you're in a category that has like an underlying health condition that puts you at severe risk for COVID. And these are also listed on the CDC website. Mm -hmm. And um, cancer is on that list. So you are eligible for a booster if you're immunocompromised early. So that's like six weeks after but then six months after, if you have cancer, you can also get a booster that way. So if you're not immunocompromised, but you have cancer, you still qualify. You just have to wait six months. So what if I go to the pharmacy and my first, my two first doses were, or the two doses were Pfizer, can I mix and match if they don't have what I got the first time? So that's another great question. And that's a new thing that just came out. I can tell this group has been doing their homework. Um, <laughs> so the, we just like a month ago, we're or not even, I don't think uh, we're now we are allowed to mix and match the booster to the primary series. We still are not recommended to mix. Like if you get one sh your, for your primary series, like you should get both shots of Pfizer or both shots of Moderna. But for the booster, since that is something extra and add like an add-on to your primary series, you are able to get whatever booster you want. And a lot of times, the only real recommendation I've seen is that I've seen um, people that have had a primary J&J &J to get a uh, Moderna or Pfizer booster just to mix um, the mRNA with the adenoviral vector vaccine seems to give a little bit better immunity. We have some data from the UK and from Canada showing that um, with the AZ vaccine, which is the same class as J&J. &J. Hmm. So that is the only real recommendation, but you can get whatever booster you want. That's, that's absolutely correct. Do you feel, or is there any science behind it? Will these boosters be like a yearly thing, like our flu shots? So hopefully not, but that's a really great question. So similar, so I know it it is very, um, 
I know people are confused by this, by why we need a booster and does this mean the vaccine's not working and stuff. So I want to back up really um, quick and just talk about the types of protection that we get from the primary series and then what we get from the booster. So I'm glad you asked that question. So, and we have data to show this. When I think we, you, everybody probably listening has heard people talking about how you know, yes, we have breakthrough cases, but the vaccines really do protect against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And that's really true because when we get the primary series, like I was saying, our body learns how to fight the virus. And there's the real like T cell, B cell immunity that we have. And then we have the, and this is very scientific, but basically to simplify, we have Disease in our lower respiratory tract is where we find the severe disease with COVID, so in the lungs. So severe disease is what bring, brings people to the ICU when they can't breathe. So the upper respiratory disease, which is the mucosal immunity, is what wanes. And that's the cold symptoms, the just feeling sick, feeling run down, um, you know, the the loss of taste and smell is all in the upper respiratory tract, but the vaccine, so that can wane over time with, with time and with variants, right? Because Delta variant kind of brought that on more. Um, and that could still happen, but we know that we still have solid protection in the lower respiratory tract, which is really what we need from any vaccine program is to present, prevent hospitalizations, prevent deaths, prevent, you know, issues, um, overcrowding the healthcare system. Like this is what we really need to protect. Like the, at some point, I really think we're all going to probably get COVID if we haven't already at some point, but we, if we're vaccinated, we are protected against that severe disease that brings people to the ICU and kills them. So it really is saving lives now, even if it, there's a perception out there that the vaccine isn't working because people are getting breakthrough cases, those breakthrough cases are not landing people in the ICU. Yeah. So I, a question I have too about with boosters and non-boosters. So if you take, um, and forgive me, I'm, I'm going to mess this up probably, but the, the, if you have like your Pneumovax or you have your uh, hep, hep C, and they check your titer, right? To see yeah. if you need a booster. Is there the same type of thing that can be done with, with the COVID vaccines? That's So that's a great question. So we get this question a lot. Like, so can I check my, so a lot of people that have had COVID want to have their antibodies. antibodies. They need the vaccine at all. Cause they were like, well, I had COVID. So I probably have high antibodies still. And the issue with that is, and hopefully soon or someday that will be the case where we can check something like that. But right now, the data that we get from those antibody tests, the number really doesn't correlate to anything clinical. And so it, it's, it's sort of hard to say. We don't really know, like between tests, there's no standardization of what those numbers really mean or correlate to. And does a you know, 1000 mean you're not going to get it again, or we don't know because those studies really have those longitudinal studies have not been done on those tests. So at this point on a population level, we can't really rely on that for protection. And really what we need to do, and this is kind of continuing on 
from my other point about the upper respiratory infections is like, we need to get transmission down. That is what's going to get this pandemic to a reasonable level so we can all get our lives back. We can all kind of move back to how we used to do things, right? right. And right now there's still a lot of transmission, which is why the booster will help kind of get some of these, you know, there, there's enough unvaccinated people running around that even if if people are, you know, are vaccinated and have a breakthrough case, you could spread it to somebody that gets severely ill. So we really just need to get transmission down right now. And um, so, yeah, so the, the antibody tests really don't correlate to anything clinical. I don't know how to explain that better, Pam. In a- <laughs> Maybe it's just too early, right? It's too early to figure out what it means. <laughs> Maybe she can. Uh, yeah, I just... We just haven't done the studies on, because hopefully someday we will have a test that can show like, oh, you have this number, that means you're good for six months, but we don't have that right now. That would be really nice. (laughs) It would be nice. It would be really nice because then we could rely on it on sort of a, like, for example, like people think of it like chicken pox, right? Like if your child's had chicken pox, then we know they are immune for, you know, whatever period of time and they can just get the shingles vaccine when they're 50 and they're good. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't that situation. And I think because it's not like, that's what people are familiar with. And they think if you've had a disease, then you're protected, but that's not necessarily the case with a mutating virus. Do you think that a lot of the confusion about this virus has been because it's so new and there's not enough information and this site says this, and this site says something else and people are leery has. So I can, I mean, my honest opinion is that we had, yes, there was a lot of, it's a new virus. It's an epidemic. In our lifetime, we haven't seen anything on this scale, right? We had SARS, we've had MERS, but those were other continents far away. We didn't have to deal with anything like this kind of up close and personal where we have family members dying and things like that. So this has all been very scary, Mm -hmm. personal to people, right? And, you know, a threat to your day-to-day safety. (laughs) So this is a totally new situation where people, psychologically, it does something to us, right? So we want to cling to whatever information we can get. And for normal, everyday people, you know, that information is not always easy to tell what's real information and what's misinformation when you're looking online, right? So that's part of the reason why I do what I do is because I recognize that there's there's an epidemic of COVID-19, but there's also an epidemic of misinformation associated with COVID-19 that people are, that's actually a risk factor for more disease and more death. So it's not people's fault that they aren't epidemiologists and they can't read the data. Like that's why I try to distill it down and give people real information because unfortunately there is just this infodemic of too much people talking that aren't science voices. Right. Yes. Oh, I know. And that's the one thing I've appreciated too on your, on your TikTok videos and your, and your Instagram um, is you always have citations and you always have here is here is a study that just came out and here it is behind you and you can see it's, yep. in, it's in peer-reviewed journals and it's correct and it everything is, I ever post about I put in my link tree um, so 
if anybody's wants ever wants good information about COVID, I try to put all the peer-reviewed important papers, FDA briefing documents, vaccine information, anything is that is relevant to things I've posted on my channel, I put in my link tree so that, and I feel like that's just another way that I can build trust, right? Because a misinformation account is not going to have that. No. So you can totally tell who's reputable, you know, and, and, you know, people will say to me, even, even with peer reviewed publications, people will say to me, well, you know, those authors paid to have that in that journal, you know, like there's always going to be naysayers. And so, but I do, I do appreciate that you pointed that out because that is something I try to do to be as reputable and trustworthy as possible by showing my sources. Yes. What about Dr. Cat? We kind of bounced around, but what about someone who's only gotten one of the two shots, like for the Moderna and the Pfizer, you know, and so it's the 21 days for Pfizer and 28 days for Moderna. What about if, if it's somebody who is listening and is like, ah, oh, I got the first one, but I didn't get my second one and it's now 48 days or whatever the case may be. Yeah. What's, what's the situation there? So interestingly, they did space out doses. So there's a couple of different reasons why people don't get the second shot. One is they just got COVID in the middle, in the middle, missed their appointment, and then are like, what do I do now? Another reason is they had a lot of um, immunogenicity reactions from the first one and thought the shot made them sick and didn't want to get the, the next one because it was things they didn't find pleasant. <laughs> and there's other ones where people are saying like, well, I only had COVID, so I only need one shot. So there's a, there's a multitude of reasons, but just so people listening know, if you've only gotten one shot, you're not protected. You're not full vaccination is two shots plus 14 days after the second shot. So you're not fully protected with one shot. And the Adverse events that you think you're getting after the first shot aren't really adverse events. They're your own body mounting an immune response to the vaccine. It's not the vaccine. It's not toxicity. So I think that's a misunderstanding is people think, oh, I got the first one and I got really sick. The shot made me sick. And it's really not a toxicity reaction. It's your own body mounting an immune response. And that's actually a good thing, even though it isn't pleasant. I can attest to all of that. But, um, you know, it's just something that you that you do. And um, there's local reactions like your arm hurts. And then there's systemic reactions like you might have a fever. You may be very tired, chills, um, but they don't last very long. So um, but yes, if you've had one shot, you should definitely get your second one. The other question is if, it's, if the window has been delayed for whatever reason, that's actually okay too, because we have data from the U from the UK and Canada where they actually to increase, they had supply issues. And so they decided that rather than give everybody two shots, they would get as many people one shot as possible. So they did that. And then they got their second dose between like six and eight to 10 weeks. I think between the two countries, it's variable, but um, their real world data vaccine effectiveness is better than ours. And that, that there's a hypothesis that it's because they spaced the doses out better than we did. Like, it, but we, you know, that was the way the clinical trials were done in the U.S. So the FDA had us follow that, which is 
the right way to do it, but, but it's just interesting. So you can get, you can still get it and you'll still mount a great response. So that way, just anybody that's listening, I wanted to make sure if that question is out there, if, well, I got the first one and for whatever reason, didn't get the second one. You're, you don't have to get the first one again and then get the second one. You just pick right up where you left off and move forward and keep going. Yeah. Keep, keep trucking. And if you have questions about like your window, you can always ask your personal physician if you think it's been way too long or something like there might be exceptions to that rule, but I would say probably not. They would probably just recommend you go. Sure. Sure. So what about flu shots and the COVID vaccine? Love these questions, guys. Um, so yes, please, everybody get your flu shot. Um, we definitely need people. Last year we had, I don't know about in Texas, but in Illinois, we had unprecedented compliance with flu shots and we were so excited. Um, yes, you can get the flu shot and the COVID shot on the same day. There is no contraindication to co-administration of the two shots together. That's good to know because I, I tell you, um, flu shots have become pretty standard, you know, it seems like, and I think people were concerned that it might cause one or the other might be less effective, but that is, that is really good news. And another common question I get, believe it or not, is that the, if you get the flu shot, it does not prevent COVID. So it's both shots, not one or the other. Um, they're different viruses, genetically distinct viruses. So the vaccines are targeted for both of the diseases. So you need both. Yes. <laughs> like people will ask me if it prevents, and I'm like, no. <laughs> um, but yes, you can get them together. If you're somebody that has very strong reactions to vaccines and you always get, you always have strong reactions to the flu shot or something, you can space them out, certainly. But there's no official contraindication to doing so. The CDC says it's fine to do them together. That's great information. And I I know this is, I think we should touch on this, Pam, just because I know we have a lot of our survivors have grandkids, uh, many of them living with them uh, and so forth. And I know that some of the information just came out uh, about for, for kiddos. So just a real quick touch on, on, on pediatric vaccine, if you would, Dr. Katz. Yes, um, it's very exciting. This um, this week, we did get authorization for ages 5 to 11. Of course, we already had the 12 to uh, 15 adolescent population was approved in May, mm-hmm. but we have the 5 to 11 population and, and appointments are available. You can go today and get your child vaccinated. Um, it's very exciting because even though there is you know, there's perception out there that we don't need to vaccinate kids, that they don't get severely ill and they don't die from COVID. In actuality, it really was in the top 10 causes of death in children in 2020, um, which a lot of people don't know. Um, Childhood deaths are much less kind of acceptable (laughs) and can't really statistically minimize them, right? Because there's a lot of years of potential life lost there. So, um, and in this age group of five through 11, just, just some, some information, like we have from the beginning of the pandemic to October, there's been almost 2 million cases in this age group. And um, it's still like 11% of the COVID positive um, tests. So there's, it's, there's a significant amount of prevalence in this 
five to 11 age group. So protecting this age group and preventing them from spreading it to more, you know, and a lot of people may be on this um, podcast, listening to this podcast might be in cancer treatment or something. It's important to make sure that COVID isn't coming home from school with your grandchildren mm-hmm. and around you because you need to protect yourself. So um, protecting the kids will also protect immunocompromised people in the family. And it's just a smaller dose, correct? It's it, yep. the same piece. It's just, it's a smaller dose. So to be clear, the vaccine that's approved, that's authorized for use is the Pfizer vaccine. And that's correct. The adult dose is 30 micrograms and the child's dose is 10. Um, And the reason for that really is because they did a dose escalation study to see like what, at what dose do they have the same amount of efficacy in children, but they wanted to minimize the exposure as much as possible. And so children mount a much, much more robust immune response to vaccines than adults do. So we can use less vaccine in order to mount a similar response to adults. And so we don't expect them to have a lot of adverse events in that population because we used a third of the dose in children. So yes, that's right. Okay. Boy, Pam, I tell you, (laughs) this has been really, really educational. And I think, I hope our listeners are nodding with me as, as I'm saying that, because um, there's, as you said, Dr. Kat, there's so much misinformation and we talk about all the time, Pam, we talk with our survivors about, you know, don't go to Dr. Google. Don't. uh, Yeah, please don't. (laughs) End up on some, you know, weird. uh, This is a, 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 a study that was done of, of two people and showed that this worked. I mean, we're talking true replicatable peer reviewed science. And Correct. that's the most important thing to remember here. Yeah, right. exactly. And, and if you ever, if people are listening and they, it just what Ryan just said, please make sure when you're making health decisions for yourself and for your family, that you're using data from a reputable source. So you can look on the CDC, you can look on like cancer.gov, you can look on the WHO. Like these are sites that have looked through all of the available information and they kind of go through and post what is the evidence as we know it right now. And as you said in one of your TikTok videos I watched this morning, not the guy screaming in his pickup truck. No, no, there's a lot of people with a lot of hot takes. And one thing this pandemic has shown me is that somebody sounding confident is not an indication that they're correct. There's a lot of people out there that are saying things very forcefully and sound like they know what they're talking about. And they might even use like sciencey sounding jargon. But anytime you're making a health decision for yourself, don't make it off of a social media post. Always double check with like one of the sites I mentioned or some of the resources you can get through the Cancer Survivorship Center. I'm sure they can steer you to the right sources for whatever you need to know. But yes, please don't make decisions based on things you read on social media. And as always, ask your healthcare provider, you know, the only stupid question is the question that's not asked. So um, make sure that you go and talk to your provider and you're comfortable with your decision. Um, 
because you're the yeah. one. And a lot of times now they're doing telehealth visits. So you don't even have to go, right? You can just right. book a telehealth appointment and ask. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, that's one thing Pam and I've talked about in numerous occasions. If there's one thing that has been great from the pandemic is like that right there. You know, yes. we're, doing, we're doing telecounseling. Tiffany, one of our counselors. Wonderful. Telecounseling. Um, oh, by the way, telecounseling is how much, Pam, does it cost from someone? That's free. It's free. All of our services that we provide here at the center are entirely free. So, you know, talking about virtual, um, as we're recording this virtual, um, it has become kind of the, the socially accepted norm. It, it's so convenient. It's so nice because, you know, it's just things you can do that are faster, easier, more convenient, especially if you're not feeling well, right? I mean, there's some things that you will never be able to replicate in a telehealth visit, like laboratories, draws, and things like that, or physical assessments the doctor needs to do. But for mo the most part, like medication side effects, things that you need to talk about, like that stuff can all be done on, you know, and counseling, things like that. It, I think it's great. Well, Ron, I know I've learned a lot of information um, and I hope our listeners have, but as always, we like to end our podcast with a Pete's powerful moment. This podcast is sponsored by Pete's CarSmart Kia. And um, is there anything that you can share with our guests, uh, Dr. Katz, and that has been a powerful moment for you? So since the beginning of this pandemic, I've been on, as we said, social media to spread evidence-based health information to people for making decisions for themselves and their families. And I have been empowered by social media to spread my message as far as I, I never would have imagined at how many people I would have reached. And I don't really think I could have done it any other way. So I do feel very powerful <laughs> with <laughs> social media platforms and I try to use them responsibly and only spread evidence-based information. Absolutely. Social media can be a good thing. Can be. Yes, it, it it's a double-edged sword, right? There's definitely a lot of misinformation out there, but I'm trying to combat it. That's right. So speaking of speaking of social media, let's tell our listeners where they can find you. Oh, thank you. On Instagram and TikTok. Let's go through that. Yep. So if you're on TikTok or Instagram, I can be reached at epidemiologist cat with a K and on Facebook, I have a page just called Dr. Cat epidemiologist. That's right. That That's where we, we where we were pointed and uh, have seen all of your, your great information there. And uh, Dr. Cat, thank you for, gosh, thank you for uh, sharing your wisdom. Thank you for sharing your expertise and really kind of shedding some light on uh this such a difficult decision and situation it's so it's 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 really hard but it, anybody that's interested can follow me it sounds like you're in good hands though with these folks because they asked me really great questions so they're very up on the science and they understand what's going on so you guys are in great hands with these folks <laughs> well, well thank you very much thank you and to our listeners please 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 share this. Um, this is not, uh, in you know, 99% of our, well, I shouldn't even say that high, probably 90% of our, our content is geared in, incredibly towards the cancer survivor population. This has fantastic information for both cancer survivors, non-cancer survivors, 
point your neighbor, point your family, your church group, your friends, your social media group, pass this on. This is fantastic information. Um, and we want to make sure uh, and help Dr. Katz spread good, solid information against the misinformation. That's what we're after. So that's your homework, right, Pam? We leave it, always leave it with homework. Your that's homework right. is take this podcast, share it away, spread the news, and then join us next week for another great episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.